Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 59 of the Petro Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Curtis, the CEO of Petro Nerds, and I am super pumped to introduce um, a podcast that I recorded with David Ramson Wood, uh, DRW. And this is a series of rapid fire questions. Um, obviously, it's, it's titled From Russia to U.S. Shale, and we cover everything from uh, it's a series of rapid fire questions that David asked me, and we cover everything from the U.S. stock market uh, to the Fed to inflation to interest rates. Rates, the global economy, the macro economy and macro environment, Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, and the resilience of U.S. shale, which David and I do disagree on, which is a good conversation. So this is rapid fire questions. This is a bit abridged um, and I kept it to a Q&A format. You can listen to the unabridged version um, on Hot Take of the Day with David Ramson Wood, the um, one and only DRW. So it's a really fun podcast. We get through a lot of information and a lot of material. And I think the conversation on the stock market is extremely pertinent given that this podcast was recorded on August 2nd, 2022. So at the time of recording and uh, to reference it today, today is September 12th, 2022. So we've seen a lot of changes which I'll recap in just a few minutes. Um, but we've seen a lot of changes, obviously, in just over a month between August 2nd and, um, and September 12th. So at the time of recording, WTI was 95.78, Brent 101.91, Henry Hub was just under eight bucks at 7.89, Dutch ETF was 60 bucks, the 30-year mortgage, which was it was 5.05%, which is significantly lower than it is today, and the 10-year yield was 2.71%. So just to bring this back to today, um, we've seen a lot of differences in the 10-year treasury and 30-year mortgage rates. Um, and we've seen some backsliding in oil prices and a lot of volatility there. Now, <clears throat> If you're paying attention to um, it, in this podcast, we talk about um, what's going on within the stock market because at the time of recording, the stock market was baking in this Fed pivot, right? That the Fed was going to basically see that we have in in uh, recession, that inflation fears were coming down, and therefore the Fed would pivot and they would start lowering rates and we would start seeing a more accommodative easing Fed and therefore stocks would get pumped up. So the stock market's baking this in and we were seeing all this froth. Now, we have not seen massive correct. We have seen the stock market correct. But if you are looking at stocks like Dollar General, Dollar Tree, you're looking at any pull-up stocks and look at the PE ratios and you will still see many of them are over 20 times. Um, so still really, really hot. Now what's happened since then, and today the stock market is up on September 12th um, because folks are expecting tomorrow, our inflation read is going to come out for September and folks are expecting it to be lower again um, <clears throat> and have it lower than it was last month. Obviously, most of that's going to be because of lower oil prices. Um, and they're the, so the stock market's up and they're hoping that the Fed is going to interpret this as positive. The problem is the Fed has come out since uh, Jerome Powell spoke at, in Jackson Hole. He was very hawkish in talking about inflation, the 1970s, and and that the Fed needed to fight inflation. We have seen multiple uh, folks from the Fed come out since then, uh, especially last week even, really reiterating the 70 basis point rate hike probability um, and that they are really wanting to try to fight inflation off. And even if um, even if core, like the CPI data, inflation data, the overall 
inflation number comes down, if we're not seeing a decline in the core data, so if you strip out food and energy, and food is a big problem of that, but if you take out food and energy, if you have housing and rent and medical services and everything, if you still have inflation going up, that's a problem. And the reason why the Fed has to keep acting is because they don't want inflation to get entrenched. They don't want expectations for inflation to get entrenched. Um, and what happened when they kept reiterating about the 1970s, when Jerome Powell was mentioning that, was the reason they have to mention that is because the Fed would take the break, you know, step on the brakes. And every time they did that, then inflation would rise again. So that number is going to be a really big deal tomorrow and something to watch very, very closely with how everyone reacts to it. Um, I still think the Fed is going to need to keep raising rates, especially from a credibility standpoint, to make sure they do keep cooling off inflation. Um, and something that we keep hearing out of the EU is that we, the U.S. is privileged with lots of natural gas and lots of domestic energy supplies. So even if we have these high prices, we will not be impacting, we will not have the severity of the impact of recession that the European Union has or that European countries have. And I think that's really important to think about because as Europe is going through all this volatility and as we've seen, you know, the death of the queen and we have seen, um, you know, a pause in, in what's going on within Britain to to mourn the death of the queen um, and Liz, Liz Truss, the new prime minister, was just... <clears throat> just became the prime minister right before the queen passed away. Um, and she has lifted the ban on fracking, um, but she hasn't been able to do a lot of the stuff that she was planning to do in the first few days in office because of the death of the queen and because of that pausing. But what you keep hearing is that, hey, the U.S. is, is, is in a better position because they have this domestic production. And that's very important in light of the fact that we have so much ESG and investor pressure and so many folks that want to reduce domestic output in, in the U.S. when they really, really shouldn't be, because this is so important for energy security and so important for economics security and economic stability. And we have seen a lot of crude volatility. So literally a lot of volatility in crude oil prices. So from the time recording this podcast with David to now, prices have come down, prices have ebbed up and flowed and come down, but we're still hanging on the these $80 levels and $86 levels. And the reason for that is because the forward curve is baking in at least to some extent, you know, future prices are baking in the odds of a recession and the demand will cool off. You've also seen continual and massive shutdowns within China. And we're talking tens of million people, tens of millions of people across multiple cities in COVID shutdowns within China. <clears throat> Lots going on in China. Definitely a space to watch. We will be getting into it in multiple podcasts. But we've seen the Saudi oil minister, uh, you know, last month, the, the OPEC increased output by 100,000 barrels a day. This month, they've decreased output by 100,000 barrels a day. That's enough to cause a little bit of volatility because you don't even know which direction the market's going. And then you have the Saudi oil minister saying they're worried about volatility and they're actually willing to cut prices because they don't think the prices are actually reflecting reality. And there are some issues that with algorithmic trading and too much computers, you know, doing the trading and headline trading. But there's also something to be said about where should prices really be? On the fundamental level of supply and demand, we have to start looking at this. And when I keep hearing, you know, analysts on CNBC and Bloomberg talk about, hey, you know, we really have a strong oil market going forward. And I, I think it's going to be relatively bullish. I think oil and energy prices are going to be relatively strong as the U.S. and the world is going into recession. And I do think the oil economy is probably going to be able to hire a lot of these people that will be losing jobs. That being said, however, we are going into recession globally. There is no good economic data point out, out in the world to say that we have. And that, that's why I say when people say we're going to have strong oil prices and good, strong oil demand, I disagree with that. I really disagree, not necessarily <clears throat> the oil price side. There's a lot going into oil prices from a geopolitical level, from what's going on with the strategic petroleum reserve, what's going on with the Biden administration. 
I do want to throw in there that we have heard that the strategic petroleum reserve, the SPR, was supposed to roll off any time. So these, we are draining the SPR like crazy. That is something that should be baked into forward prices, is that we are in the 1980s level of where our strategic petroleum reserve, the of how much crude we have for spare capacity. That's really significant. Global spare capacity is down. However, that being said, some of that doesn't matter as much if your demand slows by 500,000 barrels a day, a million barrels a day. So that helps on the price side, which which is a push-pull sort of something that we're seeing right now. But this, what we're seeing from the Biden administration is a lot of vote buying. So, uh, you know, extending the, the payoff for student loans and then, you know, absolving some student loan debt. And we're also hearing talk about potentially with SPR that that gets extended toward the end of October, obviously that or, or past that um, and through November, which obviously would help with midterm elections. So anything, especially oil prices and gasoline prices are really, really big. And I do you are hearing a lot of commentators and analysts, especially on the political side, talk about that as well. So I, I think crude prices, crude volatility is really important to watch. Um, and t- last two things I'm going to talk about is, is the EU is is Russia's sort of statements and they're, they're restricting gas flows to Europe and what Putin has been saying lately, he's going to be meeting with Xi Jinping um, on this back of the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting with um, Kazakhstan. Xi Jinping is going to Kazakhstan um, next week, and he's going to be meeting with Putin on the sidelines. If you listen to Putin's speech that he gave, it was very strict. It's very stern. It's very has a anti-Western, anti-Western sanctions talk. And he talks a lot about that pivot to Asia. So expect a very serious and renewed cooperation between China and Russia. When you hear analysts saying, oh, I just don't think that's a good relationship. And I think Xi was duped. That's just ridiculous. Um, They... Uh, China is buying more stuff from Russia um, than they ever have. We're seeing gas flows are up. We're seeing gas purchasers are up. Basically, all purchases across the board are up between China and Russia. And China and Russia have announced that they're doing all of their transactions um, for energy now in rubles and renminbi. So they're not doing it in dollars. And that is very significant. Um, Furthermore, we saw, obviously, Nord Stream, not to be confused with Nord Strum, as the White House press secretary did uh, did do um, when she was talking about it. Nord Stream 1, the major conduit for gas that flows from Europe, from Russia into Europe, um, that major conduit, not the Turkey one or the Ukrainian one, which is another conduit, but the big flows from Nord Stream 1, those have come down to a halt to zero. They were only at 20% before, and Russia came out and said, hey, we're, we're halting these because of maintenance issues, and then they came out not too far after and said, actually, we're halting this because of sanctions. And when sanctions are lifted or we do something on sanctions, then we'll increase those flows. So that's very significant. Um, You've heard a lot of EU countries talk about we have lots of storage. We are good with our storage, um, but it's not winter. It is still summertime. You don't have the demand that you need to heat these homes as you will in the winter. And I think, as I've said before, the seriousness of not having enough supply is almost way more serious. it's very serious because the prices can go up and they can bankrupt countries, they can bankrupt economies, they can bankrupt entities, everything. And, and we are seeing some real concerns from a liquidity side of the ability for just companies having enough liquidity to actually pay their bills. Um, and that could be a whole thing that starts a, you know, the black swan or the gray swan or whatever you want to call it, call it that really triggers the actual recession and, and potential financial crises um, and throws the world into recession. But that that's separate is that the EU is, is keeps trying to talk about, you know, the these cuts, right? They're proposing these 15% cuts across the board. Um, you've seen, uh, you've seen the UK um, Prime Minister um, 
talk about what she wants to do. And she doesn't want to tax um, oil and gas companies, but the EU does want to tax oil and gas companies, which is not, that's not going to help your oil and gas companies produce more oil and gas within Europe, which is what you really need. Um, hence why you're seeing UK saying they're lifting the fracking ban, which is obviously a little bit more symbolic than anything because they only banned it in 2019. However, that's really, really meaningful in the context of what's going on. And so you have the EU saying they want to price cap Russian oil and gas. And the problem with that is you don't have everyone in on it. There is very little, if no clarity out of this. Um, so every night, if you're watching Bloomberg or CNBC about two in the morning and they're talking about this um, on the European side, there is zero clarity on where this is going. And that's part of why you've seen so much volatility in prices, because as of today, as of September 12th, the change that we've seen in prices right now at this 87, we're looking at WTI at 87.78. We're looking at Brent at 94.23. Henry Hub is 8.25. We're looking at Dutch TTF has come way off their highs. Um, it's now at 56.75, and there could be some craziness with the trading there. Um, but we had seen $100. Um, that's for dollars per MMBTU. We are seeing the 30-year mortgage at 6%, north of 6%, which is very significant. That's over a percentage higher than when I recorded this podcast just over a month ago with David Ramsey. And wood. And the 10-year yield is over 3.35%. And that's really significant because that's what tracks with the that's what tracks with mortgage rates. And that's that's signaling and showing you that the Fed is more hawkish. Now, all that being said, and really important to, I'm going to close with this last thing and really important to just pay attention to is the volatility that we're seeing in oil demand. Part of that's obviously recession worries and everything. And I keep hearing, you know, the bullishness on this. Um, really just taking a pause and, and how you're thinking about where we're going with this is that how you evaluate, how you understand crude prices and whether or not it's impacting your day-to-day -day business. We still have pretty high oil prices. But what we are seeing, you know, I've talked about in presentations, especially the last one, when I give it to folks, I, I like to show charts with U.S. housing prices and oil demand, just to show that there's a pretty strong correlation. And as housing prices go down, so does oil demand. They actually move in lockstep. And as housing prices go up, so does oil demand. So something important that Bloomberg came out with their uh, their big take on Sunday and last night, and they talk about the global slowdown in housing, not just in the U.S., but the global slowdown. So obviously, we have not seen prices come off a cliff in the U.S., but we are seeing them slow. We're seeing new home builds like crazy. If you're driving around Denver, you are definitely seeing this, right? So this is happening all over the U.S. You're seeing some softening in prices. And that mortgage rate, just from 5% to 6%, that's one for that's huge. And if you think about the mortgage rate and the average mortgage sizes and how significantly the mortgage sizes increased from, you know, 2008 to now from being about $200,000 to like $400,000 or north of $400,000 now, that's significant. And if you put in perspective a $400,000 mortgage at the beginning of this year at around 3% uh, versus now at around 6% on a 30-year mortgage rate, that's about a $700 a month increase. And so we're talking when people are buying million dollar or $800,000 our homes, we're talking well north of a $1,000 increase. And that's what's really slowing down people's wanting or ability to purchase these homes because their monthly payments are so high. And we are beginning to see, um, just as a side note, we are beginning to see some serious layoffs. Uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, UBS, other banks are talking about layoffs and that is that's stemming from the mortgage size side. And the reason that's relevant <clears throat> is because if you're looking at the global picture and you're, it's not just the US slowing down, and Bloomberg did put out this article talking about this global slowdown, in housing. And the reason it's relevant is because we had so much of a price increase during the pandemic when everyone had to go buy vacation homes and buy second homes and upgrade their homes and get bigger homes. And now we've seen prices come down. And part of people feeling really good about the state of being was, you know, they had 
stimulus money, but they also saw their home value go up and that felt good, right? And they were borrowing against their home in extent to the US. But a, a great chart that they put in here is in this article is the rate vulnerability. Um, and it's the extent that you have variable rates across the world. So in the US, we have a lot of fixed rate mortgages at 30 year where a lot of people refinanced. And we had a big refinancing boom in the US on the mortgage side during COVID and, and the years after where we had low interest rates. And people were locking in mortgages, um, sometimes below 3% um, and around there. So you can see why that's that's you know very, very low interest rates. We didn't see the same across the world as in those rates are variable. So actually in Australia, nearly 100, almost 100% of their, their rates are variable, which means in a couple of years, people are going to have to refinance those mortgages at a much higher interest rate because of the rate hikes and, and high inflation. We have a decent chunk in Spain, um, a decent chunk in UK, Canada, et cetera. So it's significant globally to think about what this means. And there is a high correlation between, you know, housing and GDP growth and what it means for global. And there's a high correlation between GDP growth and oil demand. And with that, I will close. I hope you guys really enjoyed this podcast with David Ransom Wood, really enjoyed this recap. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Trisha from Petro Nerds. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, David? I'm good. How's the, uh, how's the summer going? What, like, how do you even decide what to focus on on any given day with all the things going on? You know, it's really difficult. And I tell my clients when I go speak, they like, they're like, Hey, can we get the presentation the night before? And I'm like, absolutely not. I will be working on that presentation on the Uber, although all the way to your, all the way to your thing. I did this. So every presentation and I tell them like the last title of my presentation is recession and crises, unprecedented geopolitical and economic complexities. And I open with telling everyone, this is the most unique environment, as you sort of outlaid that I've ever seen in my entire career. So um, really, the answer is to focus on everything. And increasingly, and especially for our business, I'm not sure people are doing this, but it's focusing on things like Walmart and things like Netflix and things that we, you know, in the oil and gas industry wouldn't necessarily focus on. They're extremely telling. So um, it's a really busy, um, I would say exciting, not necessarily a good time. I mean, obviously, uh, Nancy Pelosi just touched down in Taiwan. So yeah, there's a a lot going on in this world. This is a a great time to chat about in the summer. Um, It's been a busy summer. It's been a good summer. Um, But holy crap. So I'm curious from your perspective, are we in a recession? If we're not in one, are we going to be in one? And does it matter? How does it matter? Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, we are definitely, I would say we are in a recession. Um, It matters and it doesn't matter on the definition because we're already in it. So the bottom, I would, I've been saying for a long time, the bottom 50% of America is 100% in in recession. And I think clearly the Walmart earnings call made it very clear that it's really that maybe probably more defined as that bottom 40%. Um, But the reality is, is that a lot of people in America live paycheck to paycheck and they are in a recession. Um, We have I mean, textbook definition of recession is two consecutive quarters of, of negative ec- or slower negative economic growth. We had that. And what was amazing was when we had that first GDP print, you know, the first gross domestic product print in the U.S. And I explained this to my, you know, 12 year old and 14 year old nieces what GDP is last night of like, you know, what a recession because they're explaining to me that, you know, they're having to cut back, you know, they're being told they have to cut back on their TV subscriptions and everything. And I was like, OK, so we're, we go through inflation. But anyways, this two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth, that's what a, or, or slower economic growth, that's a textbook definition. That first GDP print we had at the beginning of this year, you know, the, the administration, Bloomberg, CNBC, all the sort of biases that we see in the media really washed that away and said, hey, it's not as big a deal as you think, you know, we're going to see a better quarter next quarter. And that 
did, I mean, if you were looking at the data and everything I was looking at and many of us were looking at, you knew that wasn't going to be the case um, because something that most people have missed, the Fed has missed, is that inflation is what's pulling down the economy. So those high costs are pulling down the economy. And the reason it, it, it matters or doesn't matter is that um, you, you can you can get on TV and, and Biden and, and, you know, Janet Yellen, which is that's an absolute disgrace. She was the former chair of the Federal Reserve. So for her to say the U.S. is not in recession is is really, really sad to the people who are fighting to pay their bills. And, you know, I was trying to buy bacon. I was looking on my grocery cart last night on Amazon bacon, you know, for like thick slices. It's like fifteen seventy nine for about 12 pieces of bacon. And I thought, holy crap, we're, we're we're at territories that are just are, are really, really hard for people to swallow. So what does the average person do? They just don't eat the bacon. And so for Janet Yellen to say that, I think is really um, it's insulting and same same for Biden. So it matters because we're the consumers is slowing down. How does the, does the Fed continue to raise interest rates to bring inflation down? And does inflation like do we go back to the old prices? Do we see deflation? Do we see stagflation? Do we just see six percent inflation for the next you know, period of time, which leads to a whole bunch of issues. Like, what do you, how do we get out of this um, in the inflationary standpoint? And then how does that tie to how we get out of the recession and begin to grow again economically? Uh, you know, I think it's, it's extremely difficult. Um, and something I think I've been, you know, recently charting and putting together for people is if you, if you chart U.S. inflation, U.S. Fed's fund rate, so the interest rate, and unemployment, something very clear that you see is that unemployment lags. And that's the single biggest thing our industry, the oil and gas industry, and, and probably many, many other business leaders are not really appreciating. Um, and there's some positive actually for the oil and gas industry, but unemployment has to rise, case in point. Now, the market is a little wonk is very wonky the past week because every, every time the Fed speaks, you know, they just, you know, the market interprets that as, hey, we know what's going on. And then they just rally. You know, stocks want to rally. Everybody wants to rally. Price to you know, PE ratios are still way out of whack. You, you, they're I insane. Mean, they're, they're insane. So when people say, oh, we got four, 5% left to go down. No, we have we have a lot of room to move down. We have not really corrected. So that that's one thing. But having this, like, you know, what the Fed's going to do is they have to work on inflation. And I actually, if you listen to, if you listen to the Fed speech, if you listen to Jerome Powell last week, he was very clear in saying you cannot have a healthy unemployment sector. And he was late to the party. I mean, he absolutely, I've been on the record for a year and a half on this. Like we had month over month inflation for a long time. And that was when the Fed, you know, if you have month over month inflation, you start addressing inflation. They, he never did. He did not have job security. He waited till he was reinstated. And now he's serious about inflation. Well, the problem is the economy is also serious about inflation and it's 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 crumbling around them. Um, and it's a trickle down from Ford and Tesla and all the things that you mentioned. So, you know, if you listen to that speech, I the market is rallying because they think, hey, we're, we're in recession. So the Fed is going to um, stop raising rates. And actually, they're going to they're going to be cutting rates soon as, as soon as next year. But I mean, six months ago, people didn't even think the Fed was going to raise rates. And now, obviously, we have these rate hikes, 75 basis points left, right and center. And likely, in, unless there's a really strong cut in inflation in that read coming down, that's pretty hard to see. I don't see. Um, I mean, yes, oil prices have you know come down. Obviously, the Biden administration is bagging, bragging pretty hard on you know sixty cent reduction in gasoline prices. But your core inflation, you know, if you take out, if you separate inflation and food, you saw very strong inflation and food. It is wrecking the U.S. economy. I mean, that food inflation is so big um, that it's, it's really killing the consumer. So I, those pieces of the stickiness and in inflation and wage prices and everything, that's what's really scary. And the Fed mentioned it as well, is that if you have intrinsic, like if the consumer starts believing 
that inflation isn't going away, that's when they're a really hard problem because that's when wage prices get really sticky and they have a harder time cutting it. And so they're at this point now where they got to ratchet up rates, they got to cool things off, they got to increase unemployment and they got to get that psyche of the consumer to say, hey, inflation will come down and we'll get to get here. The problem is you've not seen it. I don't know how old you are, but and I'm a little bit younger than you oh, are. But, I am old, Trisha. Um, I am like I am a dad bod model who is just aging and withering away. But you've never seen, uh, you haven't seen these levels of inflation and these high oil prices. We actually haven't. I, I was, I was, yeah, I mean, I agree. I was, uh, I would have been seven, um, 45. So right. it would have been seven-ish in when, when your parents tell you the story of when they had 18% interest rates on their mortgage. But interestingly, the savings accounts right. were earning like 20%. Exactly. So, exactly. so yes, inflation was bad. And then the result was just house prices were so low. It's why you could buy a house for 20, 30,000 because right. no one could lever up the balance sheet. And your alternative was just put money in the bank and make 20%, and which pretty good, pretty good rate. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's where people, so if you look at 1980s and you look at like where, you know, the spike in inflation, then the Fed ratchets up rates. This is Volcker, you know, high, high, high interest rates. They did that twice, actually. So they did these massive increases. Yes, they put car, car um, salesmen out of business, you know, you name it. They ratcheted up these interest rates. It was two years later that the lag in employment and people really have to appreciate unemployment lags. So when people are like, are we in a recession? Well, guess what? I survived a recession in 2010 and had to hunt for a job and had to go to DC and a one-way ticket to get one. You never feel like you're in recession because people still live their lives. We're still eating and, you know, breathing and doing all this stuff. But this one is different. And I'd say like you have, a, we, none of us have experienced this. And so we don't actually have policymakers and people in the Fed and others that really have seen this. And so it's it's extremely unique in that fighting food and energy inflation when you have a war and you have all this stuff, but you also let it. So we let it with, you know, very you know, entitlement programs. You know, people have not paid off student debt in three years. So you have hundreds of billions of dollars of a fiscal lag that hasn't been spent, you know, paid off in student debt. And then so anytime you have something where somebody wants to do something for the consumer and like a tax break or anything, you know, there's a lot of controversy. Should they increase taxes? Should they lower taxes? Because that could be inflationary. So we will talk energy and the energy transition is where we'll start. But before we even get there, we've propped up companies that have really no profitability model. They they hired people like crazy out of Silicon Valley. They had venture capital funds pumping these things to the market. And we've seen companies like Netflix, you know, they're back below pre-pandemic levels. Amazing. Once people are not locked in their house. And, Shocking. Peloton and, and everyone else and, too. Yeah. And Peloton. And I mean, pick your guy. We have all of these unsustainable, unprofitable companies that we've created, which makes it feel like 2000. And then we have a debt crisis and a housing cost crisis that feels like 2008. And so does it not feel like the love child of 2000 and 2008 is today? And yet the market is like happy, which, which seems absolutely insane to me. I mean, I think the market should be 40 or 50% lower. Like it should be below where we were in January 2020 because things are so much worse. And yet we're 25% higher and trading up every day. And I think that's exactly something that the Fed is also fighting is that is that you had 20 so you say 6 trillion and I all my charts and everything I tell every every client and every presentation I give is I say, you know, if I'm if you're getting a tr tr theme that this looks like 2000 to 2007 2008 it does, but it's a lot worse. And Way the worse. 
TARP was only $800 billion. Exactly. So you had $27 trillion in global economic stimulus, fiscal and monetary, pumped into the system during COVID. And so, of course, the market is still sort of frothy and it's hanging in there. And, and people just can't. I mean, it's, it's difficult for business leaders. Look, when you make hundreds of millions a year or even millions a year to really appreciate what inflation is, yes, you understand it. You're looking at the data and everything. But when you go buy milk and you're buying bacon and you're buying eggs and you're going to the grocery store and seeing that, lots of CEOs and executives don't actually do that themselves anymore. So feeling that, and I'm saying this is unprecedented because it hasn't been felt in 40 years. And 9% inflation in the U.S. is a very, very big deal because we're we're developed democratic country. So to have these levels of, of inflation is, it's, it's really serious. It's destabilizing. And um, so, yeah, the market is, uh, the market's not reflecting reality at all. And that stimulus is still lagging. And so one of the big things with the Fed is not just raising rates, but it's when that balance sheet is completely run off. So, you know, they talk about the taper tantrum, but you have to run off that balance sheet and then you have these higher rates. And so everyone in the, in the stock market right now is rallying because they believe that the economic data in the U.S. is going to be poor enough that the Fed will have to, you know, switch course. And the stimulus and the great Fed that we've done for, for 20 years is, is going to, you know, come to the savior. And if you look at that chart that I was talking about, unemployment, Fed's funds rate um, and inflation, you'll see that, I mean, the Fed's fund interest rates have just been for 20 years have been like this. I mean, 2007, 2008, we've been on a steady decline for interest rates. That's not a sustainable, it creates sustainable environment, it creates asset bubbles and everything. So it just doesn't get you to where you need to be and sort of to have a healthy employment sector and a healthy economy can't have high inflation um, and you have to have policies. And that's where this is really tricky is that um, I think from a partisan standpoint, people, we're going to have to get our off our you know partisan hats and realize that it's going to be whatever fixes the economy and it's going to have to be very innovative um, and we're going to have to you know forget partisan biases because it may be tax breaks or maybe tax height. There's going to be a number of different things that we're going to have to look at too. You get, we have to get people back to work. People have to go back to work. Um, and well, they only have to do that though until d- when demand cools, you're going to have higher unemployment and those people are going to wish they had jobs. Brings me to the energy transition because companies like Tesla who rely on lithium have already raised their prices $12,000. Tesla was selling huge amounts of carbon credits because of the California regulatory environment to companies like Ford who are now growing their EV growth. Then the government now wants to extend the $7,500 EV purchase when we have an unstable grid, when we don't have the lithium, when these cars don't actually leave the city and you can't drive to Wyoming without a nine hour charger or a supercharger. Like it seems like reality is starting to set in and these hopes and dreams that were far off in the future and fanciful, people are now seeing it is totally unrealistic. Like personally, I would never own an electric car. I, I would own a hybrid if you wanted to push me to be more efficient, but an electric car is illogical and it's only a rich person's vehicle or someone who never leaves town. What say you about that and how that's going to tie in the next year with what happens with Tesla? Um, well, you know, I would bet everything I own and I'd mortgage it and probably go take it on margin twice to bet against the energy transition because it's, it's, it's breaking down as we see it. And I know that's a bold statement and people get uncomfortable hearing it, but, and it's not that I'm anti, you know, on this stuff, although I'd be more pro if it was made in America, which it's, it's not. Um, so there's a huge problem there and it's a multifaceted question. I, I mean, I drive an F-150, 
I I can drive to my from I basically drive it from Denver to Craig, Colorado, where my my folks live, and it's 200 miles, and I can go back and forth twice in the summertime and and heat, and it works, and I get 700. You know, my my tank I fill it up and it says 700 miles, you know, till empty. That's a really big deal for me. And no, you in the summer with a dog and the hot car, you you don't stop and you fuel up and everything, and it, it doesn't make sense in rural America. It doesn't make sense in the mountains. And in fact, you know, if you are you know see if you if you're um, believing that you're going to have extreme temperatures going forward, the electric vehicles don't actually work, as you pointed out in some of your videos. And I, I think that, um, you know, Tesla's interesting. You know, Elon Musk is, is doing a number of different things. But truthfully, I, mean, I know the, the part of the, the climate change bill now called the Inflation Reduction Whatever Act bill. What a stupid um, name. There, how do you wait, spend more money to stop it? I mean, what, it's, it's you just, insane. You're, you're hoping that, that we're all idiots. So we can talk about that shortly. But in part of that, they, they're extending, you know, the, the tax credits for electric vehicles, which the, in the beginning, you know, the majority of those went to very wealthy people buying Teslas. And, you know, for electric car, if you're a car person, yes, from an electric standpoint, I, I, I totally get it. But from I'm saving the planet, the greenwashing standpoint, you're not saving the planet. It's very damaging to the planet to make one. And it's, you know, you're getting this cobalt from the Congo. We're already seeing companies like Ford and others buying cheaper, saying they're buying cheaper batteries. And so the cheaper batteries are don't have the range. Um, and so these range anxiety issues, I mean, really serious. And everyone says, well, it's about charging stations. I just don't think people want to stop every, you know, hour to charge up. So there's a problem there, but it's really the problem is that like, if you're, if you're in Denver on my, you know, I'm, I'm two miles North of downtown. So if you're in Highlands or anywhere in the, in, in around Denver, look at the streets, look how packed those streets are and look at when houses get built, they're all chopped up. You take a lot and you put four houses on them. There are no garages. So that means what big cords are coming out onto the street. I mean, safety concerns with that are big. Now in the future could, you have roads and all kinds of things and perfect little communities where, you know, just parking or driving and charging. Maybe. I don't know. But the point is right now, the cost to make this stuff, as you point out, is lithium. You know, when people say oil prices are going up and interest rates are going up, look, you can't have, um, I think you're, description of how you'd like the U.S. economy. There's some issues with that with 6% interest. But yes, it, you have to raise interest rates. That's a reality check. Just because inflation is out of control. That's, that's one of the few tools you have has to be done. It, it's painful. Even without high interest rates, lithium prices were going up and copper. All these prices were going up because of inflation. And they hadn't even seen the real demand. So this cheap solar doesn't exist anymore. Uh, this, the cheap wind doesn't exist anymore. The cheap, all this stuff. And they weren't profitable before. So none of these, the, the profit side is going to be really, really difficult. Now, U.S. shale has become profitable um, and, you you know, oil industry has become profitable because prices are high enough and, and folks have fixed their balance sheets and everything. So I'm not saying, you know, every single company, you know, is every single company, but most of these companies, it is not going to work. I mean, the math just doesn't work. The solar and wind for, largely have not been profitable um, and you need to use them strategically and it doesn't work that way. I, I will note that I just listened, was listening to BBC before this. And um, so Spain has instituted and these, I, I took the temperatures because these are insane numbers, but Spain, um, as you know, is a, you know, is a country in Europe and they have seen very high, uh, they've seen very high temperatures. They've had, you know, wildfires and, and all kinds of issues going on over the summer. And then, Europe has has done this uh, instituted a this 15% reduction in Olaf Scholz you know has led this as the chancellor right. of Germany has instituted this 15% reduction in natural gas use which he says is mainly the industry so uh, Spain has said you know they can't really do that but they're trying a 7% reduction and so part of this they've told people that 
in the summer, they can only, and so this is like malls and everything, places that people go to actually cool off when things are hot. Um, so they told them that they can only uh, heat or they can only cool their, their air con, as they call them, their air conditioning. They can only cool till to 27 degrees Celsius. And so they're interviewing people and you hear them like, yeah, it's pretty warm, but like air conditioning. So just to clarify, 20, 27 degrees Celsius is 80.6 degrees. degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah. it is not turning on your air conditioner, folks. It's like basically, you know, I'm my leaving your air conditioner off. And then for the winter, and this is where it gets really scary. So one, I think that 80 degrees can, can probably have health obviously have health issues for folks who need to be cooler in the summer, especially elderly people. Um, but in the winter, and this is what's scary to me, and we already had this, European Central Bank had already said well before this energy crisis that people were not adequately heating and cooling their homes because they were allowing higher inflation so they could look through the energy transition. Um, they were allowing that because that, that's what they wanted to do. And people were not adequately heating and cooling homes over a year ago. And now they're saying in Spain that you can't heat your home above 19 degrees Celsius, which is 66.2 degrees. And I I think that's, I mean, that's really scary and damning for people. That's pretty chilly. I mean, I'm a skinny woman. I can tell you that at 66 degrees, I'm cold. I have my fireplace on all the time in the winter and I'm hanging by it. So yes, a lot of people are going to be really chilly. And you're telling, you're telling these people they're going to what they're going to bundle up. I mean, these are going to have really serious geopolitical ramifications. And, you know, I, I've spoke about it in some previous podcasts where I did some mashups and stuff. And I, I think the the geopolitical dynamics of just power dynamics of something as simple as where you produce energy and who controls it. Um, the single biggest thing we could do in the world right now is produce as much as much oil and natural gas as possible as to accelerate pipeline development and export a crap ton of it. If we just increase our exports even by a few BCF a day, we cool off the market. We, t- we take the, the, you know, the, the bottle off the top and, and the fizz pops off and we, we cool things down and it settles out and we change the power dynamics. I mean, China is completely self-sufficient in, in power generation right now because they've- uh, they're, they're using coal. They're using coal and they've increased coal production by 100 million tons in the past five years. That's huge. So- that's there. That nearly 400 million tons of coal, 100 million tons in the past five years. There's a lot of reasons you do that, and it is one is definitely you know security in your power generation, but you don't do it for kicks and giggles, and that's why this Taiwan stuff right now is is so serious. But you know China, Russia, uh, you know stuff going on in that place, inflation here. I mean the power dynamics, the the weakness in leadership within the U.S., which is certainly perceived. Not having even a, a you know this is a Chamberlain moment for Europe, where you know you don't have a Boris Johnson is 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 not the He's acting prime minister, but you don't have prime minister. Mario Draghi's out in Italy. I mean, you can list these things off. The, the list is endless of the problems that we're sort of seeing globally. So one of the things you touched on um, that I wanted to kind of come back to, this energy transition. Yeah, we should be producing all forms of energy, not shutting down nuclear facilities, excepting coal. I went on Chuck Yates' podcast about two months ago. How are people going to come out and say, you know what, we were wrong in the energy transition unless every single current politician is voted out and we get a whole new slate of like climate deniers to use a a colloquial phrase. You know, I think one you could say, and people always say, well, it's sort of happening. I mean, it it is technically it's happening. I mean, so in Germany, they're, they're, you know, turning on all the coal fired power generation they have. And your point on coal, I mean, it's a, The one thing people don't really realize, and I I call it crude oil, natural gas, and coal or petroleum. I don't call fossil fuels anymore. Um, Coal is really stable. And the thing that, you know, all these people that, you know, really want to change the world with climate change, 
it's not going to happen. And I, I hate to burst your bubble, but it's this geopolitical dynamics, the global dynamics. I mean, when I was doubling down on my business in 2020 and, you know, lost my job, lost one of my, my jobs uh, downtown with the oil company and doubling down on Petronards, you know, people were like, what are you doing? And because everybody was leaving and going to energy transition stuff. And I was like, well, look, there's going to be about 12 of us that understand hydrocarbons and geopolitics. And I am sure it's all going to be one of them. And it's, it's true. There's just so few people that really understand what's going on. And coal is, it's a, the reason it's so relevant is because you can scoop it up, you can put it in a truck, you can put it, um, you can just set it next to a power plant and you don't have to transport it. We don't have these issues with compression. You can put it on a boat. You can, it's very secure. It's very, very stable. And so geopolitically, and when, when your people are rioting in the streets and, and screaming in a developed world like Germany and Spain that they don't have enough heat, you are going to burn every bit of coal you possibly have. You're going to do anything you have to get it. And by the way, and Germany has the, these coal mines that I'm sure they're going to be ratcheting up. So, and we saw this, we saw this even in China last year. So the coal element is really serious. And that's why I say that's actually, you're already seeing it break down. So Germany, before all this happened, was saying they're going no coal. They're going, you know, all renewables. And the no U.S. Nuclear. is the, right. No nuclear. And I we haven't heard exactly if we're, what's going on with that nuclear, those nuclear facilities. But in the U.S., you know, Biden has said it and is still saying it. But I mean, it's not going to happen, saying our grid is going to be completely net zero by 2035. Well, that would require us to build out, you know, a crap ton of transmission lines, which we legally we don't even have the legal infrastructure, like the legal codes that, I mean, we don't have the laws in place to do it. Um, so it's not going to happen. J.P. Morgan, the guy, um, Michael, who wrote that J.P. Morgan report, if you've seen it, it's, it's fantastic. Um, I mean, he sort of spells that out really clearly. We don't have the, the legal codes to do that. So it's probably just not going to happen. And um, and yet, you know, people think it's, it's going to happen. So I think that admitting it is one thing, doing it is a different thing. And so we're already seeing, you know, people have to, you have to power the lights. So this winter is going to be very, very hard for Europe. And, you know, already I would say it's it's hard in the U.S. I mean, electricity bills, we have seen, you saw that 9.1% you know, inflation read, but if you break that down, there's a 13.7% in electricity price increases. So massive increase. And that's where I say like Exxon has a really good chart in the earnings call um, and they don't put the prices to it, but they put the like oil price increase over the last three years and the natural gas price increase. And, you know, I tell people a lot, you should be way more worried about natural gas price increases in the U.S. in terms of what can take down the economy and the consumer is because that gas is it's heating your home. And it's um, turning and it's 45% of electricity generation, right. as it's, I recall, certainly in Colorado, it is. Yes. And it's turning your lights on. And it's 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 fundamental to summer and winter and everything. So when we and we have what, uh, 789 today, but we were we were pushing that, that nine handle. I mean, it's really serious. And in Europe, you have $60 and uh, $60 in MCF right now for Dutch TTF. So, I, and also it doesn't even matter. Like Europe main, Europe has 20% flows right now on Nord Stream 1 on 20% flows. That's why, you know, Dutch TTF prices are so high. Um, but these consumers, I mean, we've already seen a quadrupling in electricity prices in, in one year in the UK since this uh, one year we've seen a quadrupling. So it's increased by four times. And now the UK is they put the new price cap, which just keep going up of the average electricity bill of the your cap price cap on your electricity bill is 500 pounds per month. Um, that 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 can kill. People can't it, afford that. No, people can't afford. And I, you know, even 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 wealthier people that what it does is it has a trickle down effect that they're not buying other stuff. And I think it's really serious. So I want to take this moment, if you allow me to, because I mentioned before we got on this call with uh, so Liberty, and I think you and I are both. Most of us in the industry are pretty big fans of Chris Wright, um, but if you haven't listened to the earnings, well, call- I think I think Chris was Chris was the first leader who had a platform, and he said what needed to be said, 
before Mike Worth has finally come out with their letter a month ago to Biden and Darren Woods a little bit, but they went through an entire activism campaign. Mm -hmm. And so I have a huge amount of respect for Chris because he took an outspoken position, pushing back on a lot of the narrative for a very, very long time. And, and more leaders need to take his lead. So totally agree. Talk to us about the Liberty earnings. Call. Yeah. And I mean, more leaders and Mike Worth isn't even on his earnings call anymore, which I have a bone to pick with that just in general, that that Chevron doesn't have the CEO on the earnings call. And, you know, it's basically eight minutes of talk and then it's it's a question answer. But, you know, Liberty and I been, I say this to a lot of industry leaders and sometimes I get I get pushback on this because they've leaned in so much on the energy transition. So in his call, I mean, there's a lot going on Liberty call, which I'll get into in, in future podcasts. But, you know, he says, um, quote, the world is gripped today by a serious energy and food crisis that is of our own making. It is not, in fact, due to any shortage of available resources. It is due entirely to investment decisions and a growing myriad of barriers to investment um, in hydrocarbons. The very hydrocarbons without which the modern world is simply not possible. It is admirable that the public regulators in our industry are keen to improve the quality and cleanliness of our activities. It is not admirable that so many emotionally driven, fact-free impediments to investment have come from government regulations, NGO litigation, and lobbying and Wall Street, too often equating lower greenhouse gas with better in all cases. The blame for the current energy crisis also falls on our industry for too often um, compliantly going along with with the endless anti-hydrocarbon fashion of today. It if it's not for us to speak candidly, honestly, and loudly about the critical role hydrocarbons play in the modern world, and most critically for those desiring simply to join the modern world, then who else will play this role? Certainly, it has not been political leaders, activists, academics, or celebrities. It, um, it is us that must carry that torch. Otherwise, the immense human damage we see today from the lack of investment in hydrocarbon production and hydrocarbon infrastructure will only be the beginning of a climatist crisis. And amen to Chris Wright. Yeah, I mean, and absolutely. And and I think what the industry, in my opinion, has done well, other than the fact, and, and we've talked about this a lot in the past and on past podcasts, the, the challenge on the oil side in particular of the remainder of tier one inventory, given the, I mean, again, $100 oil opens the door, but, but the US is not getting back to 12.8 million barrels a day of oil ever. That That's my big statement for the day. I've said it before. I'll I know you again. have, and I'll disagree with you. My call is that at some point by the end of September, the sanctions will be removed and Ru and Russia will take whatever it wants from Ukraine and it'll have peace. I'm curious your take on that. Um, so I just, I, you know, I disagree on a couple of points. Um, as you know, we, we've talked about this, you know, for years, but I, I absolutely think that the technical barriers and the, you know, from a technical rock standpoint, I'm not concerned at all about your show, what we can do. I think there are a lot of above ground issues, you know, certainly people inflation tightness, like just getting people in the field is a huge issue right now. Um, we are, when you look at the numbers for us production, I am not concerned about, I mean, you can put uh, Bakken, Anadarko, Permian, you can put all the shale basins together and you can normalize that decline curve. And they've still improved even by a little bit. They've improved on a productivity basis when you normalize it. So I'm not technically concerned. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. Um, but there's some there's some gains there. We've seen up spacing, lots of different stuff, and you can we can slice and dice that. Um but from a technical standpoint, you know, $100 oil, even $80 oil, tier four acreage looks sexy. And if you break down where public operators are drilling and where private operators are drilling and where public operator ducks are, and 
private operator ducks are. It's a completely different map. You know, publics are very concentrated in the core and privates are everywhere and privates are dominating the activity. And I am not seeing, if I'm looking at New Mexico, I am seeing 1.5 million barrels a day in New Mexico, the state of New Mexico, which is only two counties, Lee and Eddy County are producing 1.5 million barrels per day. That's ridiculously impressive. That is some of the best rock in the entire world. So um, when we are looking at the Permian, and I'm, I'm going to have Aaron Hunter with ConocoPhillips back on my podcast, um, I, I'm not concerned about production. growth In, in the Bakken, Eagleford, there's different things there, but I mean, we're producing 100, 120 BCF a day of, of gross natural gas withdrawals, you know, for, for shale gas. So I'm not concerned about production in the U.S. I'm concerned about, you know, overall having production around the world. So that's, that's big. Um, I, so one, I disagree with on, on that piece, but uh, the the piece with Russia is complex, and I think a lot of folks get into this this camp of okay, well, we got to remove these sanctions, or or a better question is like, it, is Russia going to be a pariah? How long are they going to be a pariah state? Um, and it's not nearly simple as sort of like lifting the sanctions. One, I don't think that's going to happen. There is no easy way out. I mean, maybe if they ousted Putin and you know they sort of begged for forgiveness, that might happen. Um, I, you know, Russia is not a good. Putin is not a good guy. Russia, I mean, I think the people of Russia are very different from the leadership. Same probably in China as well. Um, Same in Iran, you know, all these places. However, that being said is that they, this is not going to go away anytime soon, right? Basically the war in in Ukraine is entrenched and that's why this is going to go on for a very long period of time. And nobody looks at when these statements are made, we don't see like China is funding this war, you know, the day the day of the invasion, they came out and said we're we're buying more grain from China. If you or buy, China's buying more grain from Russia, if you look at their trade over the past even just year, it's accelerated massively between Russia and China. So, the you have the least amount of border troops that Russia's ever had on the border of China prior to the war in Ukraine. They moved all those all those over to Ukraine. Um, so the deal with Russia and China is way more significant than people realize. And it's sort of, you know, it, you look at it, if, I, I think, and I, I don't mean to, you know, be alarmist in, in sort of World War II analogies, but you, you've never had a better World War II, you know, analogy than now. You've never seen every card line up to where say, okay, so Russia's doing this in Ukraine. You've got Europe at their knees. They, they are dealing with food and energy crisis. They can't pay their bills. They are losing leaders left, right, and center. And, you know, we're this China element, which is being drummed up right now because Nancy Pelosi just touched down on Taiwan and China saying, you know, talking or saber rattling with Taiwan. It's not it's not even saber rattling. This is really serious. And so when you say when we talk about 2008, we talk about financial crises. I mean, you don't even have to have a takeover of Taiwan. You just have to have issues within a Taiwan Straits to impact semiconductors because over, you know, 70 percent of the global semiconductors are coming out of Taiwan alone. It, that's really, really serious. It means that if my computer breaks down to run my business and I can't get a new computer, I'm in trouble. Um, and those are largely coming from from there. So I think that to answer your question on Russia, I, it, it's no, the, the sanctions are not going to get lifted. Um, that is not the only answer. Um, and the answer really is should be um, Europe. You're going to have to start producing shale gas. You're going to have to start. You know, you need to mine all your coal in Germany, and you do have you do have natural gas assets. And you know, you're going to have to develop them. And and there could be a force and point in the next several years where that actually happens. They'll be delayed. It'll be lagged. It'll be painful. Um, 
But you have Russia using this as a weapon. You have the West saying, I never want a war, so I'm not going to put troops in. And so they just sanction the crap out of everything. And they think that's what's going to stop it. They don't realize, I mean, so the Russian economy, and I'm not saying it's good. It's, it's very bad there. It's messy and everything. But it's been resilient. It's, it was pretty resilient from 2014 to 2021 because your break-even price for their break fiscal break-even price for oil is really low. It's in the 40s. Probably, you know, I'm guessing it's probably low 40s. So that's that's really significant when you're getting a $35 discount and India is now taking over a million barrels a day. You know, and if you look at China's imports, China takes 2 million barrels a day from Russia now. They get 2 million barrels a day from Saudi. They get a million and a half barrels a day from Iran. You know, they import about 10 million barrels a day. Over half their volumes are secured with authoritarian autocratic countries that are very, very close to them where they've secured these supplies. So not the same for natural gas. That's why they have the coal. But I mean, it's it's really serious and complicated. And there's no way you can look at the Russia issue without looking at the China issue. And this is where the energy transition thing matters a lot to me, because in China, we are I mean, we are not focused as seriously. It's convenient for folks to sort of paint the only bad guy. And Putin is not a good guy. You know, this is a bad problem, but it's not the only bad guy we have. And, um, you know, Xi Jinping has not left his country in years. Um, and he is the province of Xinjiang produces a lot of coal. And that's where all the solar panels come from. And that's where all the windmills come from. And that's where all the stuff that's going to Europe, solar panels, windmills, war buying. And that comes from forced labor. And I mean, these are these are really I mean, you now have on phones, you now have apps where, you know, not only do they have a mortgage crisis going on and a, you know, housing problem that's going on in China, but people aren't, people are rioting now um, and protesting because their apps on their phones, their COVID apps, um, which are very similar to the security apps that they had in Xinjiang for, for Uyghur Muslims, are telling them they can't go into banks because they have COVID and they can't extract their money. Um, and they're not paying their mortgages. And these are mortgages of $3,000 a month for homes that are not yet built. So um, this stuff is really serious. And it's, I think it's just a little more interconnected. So I, I don't think you can talk about Russia without talking about China. And so, you know, thinking that we could lift sanctions and the price status goes away. It's, it's not that simple. Um, and yeah, you know, they they haven't worked it out, but this is a long game. And um, this is sort of we dabble in Ukraine, we get funding from China. I, I think they can sustain a little bit longer than people think. So so last question for you before we close today, with all of that in the background, what do you think the next six to 12 months looks like globally? Uh, you can you can take the spin of what happens in the midterms. You can talk energy transition. You can talk geopolitics. But but what should people expect and what are the things that they should be watching for as the canary in the coal mine outside of all of the topics we've talked about today? You know, I would say that the the thing you look when everybody's looking left, you look right and vice versa. Um, and so as we pointed out, you know, when the stock market's looking good, you know, there's it's probably not there. So. The canary in the coal mine is it's sort of like any crises. If you've studied financial crises or anything, um, it's never something we didn't know. Right. It's the, you know, Lehman Brothers collapsed. And that was the you know, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, but that wasn't like a new thing. Like we knew Bear Stearns. We knew these companies, you know, these entities weren't doing well. But, you know, we did have a lot of folks pushing them by, you know, people buying bonds and stuff. So I would say looking at now is that. Um, it's all out there. And I keep, t I always say at these, it's like everybody's waiting for that black swan event. They're, they're not black. We can see all of them. They're actually like in the water. They're swimming around us. They're all great. We can see them. And, you know, Taiwan is one of them. China is one of them. Russia, like all these are, are things. But I would say the, the single biggest thing that's going to probably pull this easiest thing that people can wrap their arms around that they can see is uh, the energy crisis in, in Europe is going to, is, is, 
pulling them into recession now. They're in recession, 100% full tilt, and they're going to um, they're going to pull down the global economy. Um, and I I think that that's a it's a it's a plausible thing. And I I, I I'm not trying to be alarmist with that, but yes, it's very easy to wrap your arms around that when you realize that you know Germany is an industrial powerhouse, and if they're you know reducing their consumption of natural gas by 15%, they're just not going to be able to produce this stuff. But when you see people not being able to heat their homes, I I think this gets out of you know this will get out of whack you know, coming in winter. So I think looking, I think you mentioned debt levels in the U S and we saw household debt uh, has ebbed above $16 trillion in the U S. So, um, there's no one thing like energy transition, I would say is, you know, heating in, in the winter access to fuel, um, what's going on in Europe. Um, and I think, and really midterms here in the U S inflation is the biggest thing. I think that the health of the consumer. And so when people say we're not in recession, you can say we're not in recession all day long, but I'm betting the 40% of, you know, the, the, the people who are shopping at Walmart, I'm pretty sure they, they think we're in recession. I'm pretty sure they don't need, who cares what you call it? They're feeling pain and they're not buying anything, but fuel and groceries. Um, and that's really serious. And when Jerome Powell gets on, on television and he says that people are eating less, that's scary. I mean, in America, people are consuming less food and um, because they the cost of food. And so, yes, you could say um, we have a healthy and, and obese society, and I'm sure people will point to that. But I'm talking about people who need to eat. I'm talking about the average person, you know, families and feeding their children. And I'm talking about the elderly. And so when you compound that with food's really expensive and we got to heat our homes this winter, um, yeah, I think the money side is just going to get really tight. So I would pay attention to, you know, not the lives we're living and going out to restaurants in Denver and saying, oh, it's full. So we're not in recession. You know, I mean, those are always that's always the last shoe to drop. Right. Um, so it's the we've heard the job cuts from Ford. We've heard it from, you know, earnings. We've talked about Goldman Sachs, Apple, Microsoft, all these companies are talking about job cuts. It's when you start hearing in the, you know, we're already hearing the things from Walmart and, and Target. So I think when we start hearing job cuts in, you know, middle, you know, the, that the average place and the consumer, that's, that's where people are going to start freaking out when they start feeling and the unemployment starts ticking up and the Fed's going to be in a, in a rough spot. So this is an unprecedented situation. And I think the next six to 12 months are going to be, um, and 18 months are going to be extremely volatile. So expect volatility and don't listen to, um, the stock market and people on CNBC and Bloomberg to tell you what's happening around the world. Trisha Curtis, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you again.